Mark chapter 3. I've, uh, I, I know you can't tell, but uh, I've actually been riding my bike again. I, 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 ride, I try to ride every other day. And it, it, my bike needs a tune-up. Uh, when, I, when I shift gears, uh, sometimes it doesn't always go right on, uh, on the right sprocket, and, it, and, and it'll skip. So if, it's, if, if, you're, if you're out of tune, uh, your, your back chain, your, it'll skip a sprocket. And it's, re- it's, not, it's not that big of a deal, really. It's just very irritating. And one, the last thing I need is any more irritation in my life. Um, but it needs a tune-up. And so um, I got to thinking about Mark chapter 3 in, in our text this morning. And, and it, 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 I guess I would title this a spiritual tune-up. What, is it, what does it mean when we say we tune something up? Well, there's a lot of different ways to tune up. If you're talking about a musical instrument, you, you tune it up to match, I guess, I don't know. See, now I'm out, of my, I'm, I'm, I'm out of my lane now, but you match pitch or tone or whatever. I don't know what, what, what you do with musical instruments. Um, but, but basically a tune-up is to bring things into a proper working condition, in essence. Um, and, and I think that as we follow Jesus Christ, that he, he tunes us up. He, he brings us, maybe, maybe it's not really bad, maybe you know, we're just skipping a gear every now and then, and, and, and he wants to continually just kind of tune us up. Well, I thought of that in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Uh, if you turn there with me, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, because of a particular incident in their life when they wanted Jesus to rain down fire from heaven and incinerate some ungodly sinners. Yeah, these were two of his... Jesus chose these two guys. Um, Even though maybe we resonate with that sentiment from time to time, uh, probably not a good thing if you want to follow Jesus. I don't know. I digress. Where am I? Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaan uh, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. How does he tune us up? When we look at this text, it looks like just a kind of Mark has just thrown together some disparate accounts of Jesus' life. And there was a reason why Mark put these things together the way he did. He wasn't just um, writing ad hoc. 
Um, let me suggest to you this morning that there are two ways that we see in, in these verses that, uh, that he tunes our life up. And the first one is he, he realigns our mission. He realigns our mission in this world, in this life. He realigns it from self, from a mission to myself, that, that, that before I came to know Christ, it was all about me. Um, and now he, when I came to know Christ, now he has to realign me. And, and he has to realign my mission. And now, now it, it, it's no longer about me. And I look again with me at verse, at verse 7, and we, at, at first glance, these verses sound exciting, don't they? I mean, Jesus withdrew. By the way, that word withdrew, anakoreo, it is a word that was used when you retreated from a battle. And remember, two weeks ago, when we did the text before this, remember my argument was that Jesus took the fight to them? That Jesus picked a fight? Well, now he's with. This just, I think, supports that. This is this is a word that used after you were in battle when you withdrew from the battle. So he is withdrawing from a battle that he had in in the verses we looked before. And listen to to, to to where all these people were coming from. They were coming from everywhere. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Again, let let, let me. Let me suggest that we look at this with different eyes. Not, not from eyes of, wow, what an exciting ministry, but what a difficult world Jesus lived in. What a difficult world the disciples lived in. That they were, that this crowd would, would press around them, this constant pressing, pressing, this constant crowding. Um, if, if you've ever been in, have you ever been to a Rockies game? I don't know about you, but I, I tend not to like big crowds. I don't like Rockies games. I don't like, well, Broncos. Who, who can afford? Who's ever gone to a Bronco game? But have you ever been in, in a crowd where you're just getting pressed and crowded and how that wears on you? Well, it does me. It just wears me out. This crowd was was crowding. And why were they crowding and pressing against him? Was it to worship him? No. Why were they doing it? To get something. By this time, they've been fed. They've seen miracles. They've seen invalids healed. And they're pressing against him to get something from him. And so much so that he said he would have to frequently get in a boat and move out into the water to keep people from crushing him. It was a, it was, this was a difficult ministry. This was a difficult world in, in which Jesus ministered and, and his disciples. But not just difficult, but demonic. Again, look at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them to not to make him known. This demonic manifestation. Again, we read these words. Man, it sounds so exciting. He's casting out demons. And um, I don't know if you've ever been um, in the presence of something like this, but but it it is very unnerving. I I had once years ago in Albuquerque um, a young man who in fact was demon-possessed, and the demon manifested himself. And I've never been more unsettled um, and taken off guard. Um, 
And quite frankly, just fearful. It is a fearful experience. Um, I wasn't involved. I was there. I was observing. Um, but, but we read these verses and we're in an air-conditioned room and well-lit and we're reading, wow, how exciting, and they're casting out. This, this was a, a very uh, scary situation. Not, not, not for Jesus, obviously, but certainly for his disciples. So this was, this was really a difficult world, it, it, difficult and demonic. And um, it was exhausting, it was consuming, it was threatening, it was persistent. And, 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 and in, in the midst of this difficult world, he gives them this, this daunting mission. Again, he realigns, their, he realigns their mission. Look at me at verse 13. He went up on a mountain. He called him to them, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. And here's their mission. That they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. He might send them to Kilimasoko. Is that, is that, did I pronounce that right? To preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is a this is a daunting. Listen, we all experience it, right? This is a daunting mission to go and preach the gospel. It is a daunting mission to go next door to our neighbors and preach the gospel to them. It is really daunting now in a world that is wanting to cancel us and silence us to preach the gospel. Now they don't want to hear it. Listen, he's given us a daunting mission. And we can shrink back in fear and cowardice, or we can, we can seize the day, and, and we can say, God has called us to a difficult world, to a demonic world, and, and, and he's given us a daunting mission, especially in our culture right now, to preach the gospel, and he says to them to cast out demons. Now, we're not going to get into the whether the average Christian can cast demons out or not. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But the, the, the apostles certainly had the authority to do that. We read accounts time and time again where, in fact, they did that. In fact, one time, they couldn't do it. Remember this story? And Jesus shows up and they said, we, we, we said all the right words, we went through all the right, but we couldn't do it. And he said, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting if you use the TR. This was a daunting mission. It's not easy to get in a, in, in, in a Jeep and go to a a distant village and, and, and preach the gospel and the cross. That, that, that's daunting. He had a two-step process. That Number one, that they would be with him, that he would send them out. Now, Mark doesn't include what Matthew included in terms of their mission. Turn, keep your mark here. Turn to Matthew chapter 10, if you would. Matthew includes what he would say to what he said to them on their mission. And, and Paul and Virginia, I wonder if uh, if a sending agency would say this to, to our missionaries before they went out. How many would <laughs> would go? Behold, I'm sending you out, verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, 
from father as child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures forever will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That is a daunting mission. Uh, time and time again, we see these men having to face a difficult and demonic world. Um, and yet, obviously, Jesus provided for them. It, it, it was daunting, though, but not just a, a dangerous and difficult demonic world, not just a daunting mission, but look at this unlikely team he chose. Back to Mark chapter 3, verse 16. Here are the guys he chose. Who were they? He appointed... Let's see, there four of them were fishermen. Have you ever been around, have you ever around guys that have been out fishing all day? What's the first thing you notice about guys that have been fishing all day? They smell. Right, Michael? They smell. They smell really bad. Uh, and I could tell you fishing stories of my own, but I won't. He, he chose four fishermen, and typically fishermen were not the most erudite. Um, the jokes they told were, were not always the best. Uh, he chose four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And then, of course, James and John were also uh, called the sons of thunder. He chose a tax collector, Matthew. Now, we talked about Matthew a while back, tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated. Uh, they were sellouts. They, were, uh, they, they would extort money from, from, for taxes. Uh, they, they would give to Rome what, what Rome had asked of them, and they would overcharge, and they'd put it in their pocket. Um, and uh, they were outcasts. They were really outcasts. They couldn't attend temple services. They were, they were hated by all. And so he, he chose a tax collector. He chose a local IRS agent. All right. Uh, next, he 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 called Simon the Zealot. Anybody know who the Zealots were? The Zealots were terrorists, basically. Their motto was, "We need to overthrow Rome. Take up your arms, and we're going to overthrow Rome." Can you imagine having Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector on your team? Now, granted, they have come to know Christ. By the way, talk about, you, you talk about reconciliation. Racial reconciliation. Here is a tax collector and a zealot, and what was it that reconciled them? Did, 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 did Matthew say, Simon, you need to get down on your hands and knees and ask forgiveness for all the things you've done towards tax collectors. And did Simon say, well, I'll do it after you get down on your hands and knees and ask forgiveness and give reparations for all the money you've taken from me? Did they say that? No. What was it that brought them together and reconciled a tax collector and a zealot? Jesus Christ did. The Gospel did. Oh, that was last week. I'm sorry. He called a thief. Judas. We read in one of the Gospels that Judas was prone to take money out of the, the bin. And, of course, he ultimately betrayed Jesus. I don't know. Have anybody named, named their kids Judas lately? 
I don't know. Rachel, you guys considering that as a... The others we really don't have any real information on tradition is about all we have. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas. Of course, we, we know Thomas, Doubting Thomas. Um, James, son of Alphaeus. They, they were all Galileans except for one. Galilee was kind of the... Well, as I call Galilee, was kind of the Hobbes of, of Israel. It was kind of the, the redneck region. It was north. Galilee was the more educated, more engineers. Um, Judea. Judea. What did I say? Okay. Judea, south, more educated, a little more wealthy, economically prosperous. There was only one of the twelve who came from Judea, and that was Judas. All the rest were from Galilee. In fact, all of them were, were, lived uh, in the region of Capernaum where Jesus was kind of Jesus' home base. What do you think? Fishermen, tax collector, zealot, thief, betrayer. It's interesting to me that this, this was his method. His method was to call the most unlikely people for this daunting mission. And I've often asked myself why. Why these guys? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. Um, but I look around this morning, and, and you're probably looking up here going, why us? Um, no one in here is famous, powerful, um, wealthy. Well, by world standards, most of us are wealthy. And then I remember 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He realigns our mission. He, he takes us and He tweaks us, and He tunes us, He moves us from self to others in, in a mission, and He calls us and sends us out into a very difficult world, into a, a very real demonic world. The manifestation of that in the United States may be different than in southern Tanzania, but, but it is demonic nonetheless. And you may say, I'm not up to that. Well, neither were they. No, we're not apostles. We're not, we've not been given that authority. Um, but, but He called us to go out into the, this world and, and to preach the gospel. He realigns our mission. Number two, He reorients our relationships. Uh, turn back to me to Mark chapter 3. Beginning in verse 20. Then He went home and the crowd gathered again so that He could not even eat. Again, this this is a difficult this is a difficult ministry. Jesus, in his humanity, this was a difficult ministry. He couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now let that sink in for a moment. Look with me down at verse thirty-one, and Mark tells us who his family was who thought this. Who was it that thought he is out of his mind? Who was it? You can say it. Mary. His mother. 
the one that the angel came to her and said, you, you among all women are most blessed and you know, the, you, you will conceive, you'll conceive what will be conceived to you is of the Holy Spirit. All of that. We do it every Christmas. We talk about it every What was it that she missed that she thought he was out of his mind? And his brother said, he's he's out of his mind. And they came to talk to him. What What does it say, verse 21? To seize him. To drag him back home. And in classic Mark, this is what we call, uh, we, I call a Mark sandwich. All through the Gospel of Mark, we see he begins one story, he introduces another, and then finishes the story at the end. I call it... uh, a Mark sandwich. This is a Mark sandwich. This is very typical of Mark. In between this this story of of his family coming to seize him, it, it, in the meantime, the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, "How can Satan cast out Satan?" If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Kind of an interesting principle for our country right now, I think. Didn't Lincoln use these words, I think, in the Gettysburg? Didn't he? If Satan is risen up against himself, verse 26, and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, and, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they have been saying, it's in perfect tense, they have been saying he has an unclean spirit. He reorients our relationships from blood to spirit. What do I mean by that? First of all, I think if you'll indulge me to stretch this a little bit, three families that are represented here. Number one is natural family. Um, And what was their attitude towards Jesus? It was condescending. He's lost it. And quite frankly, he's an embarrassment to the family. I mean, the traveling around, the crowds, he can't even eat. He's lost it. They wanted to domesticate him. What does domesticate mean? It means to, to, to bring into proper order, to, be, to, 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 to make reasonable... They wanted to domesticate him. They wanted to pat him on the head and say, Jesus, it's time to come home. You, you, you need to come home. You need to keep a... You need to kind of keep a lower profile. It seems to me that even today, we want to try to domesticate Jesus. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, and if, if you read other sections of Matthew and Luke and John, um, there are going to be things Jesus says, that Jesus said, that you're going to go, ooh, 
Because we've been jammed. Guys, men's Bible study yesterday morning, remember? The three-step process, desensitize, jamming, and then conversion. Our culture is trying to desensitize us, to jam us. And, and sometimes when we hear the gospel, when we hear things that Jesus say, it, it, it sounds foreign and awkward to our cultural ears. And we want to domesticate him. We want to say, well, let's tone Jesus down a little bit. Well, let's tone this rhetoric down. Let's, this stuff about, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. We need, to, we need to domesticate that. We need to tone that down. This was Mary. It shows me she really didn't get it yet either. To her, to, you know, to give her credit, who could at this point really fully grasp who Jesus was? It was naturally, his natural family wanted, wanted to domesticate him. And then, he, I guess, here's right straight. His religious family, look again at verse 22. The scribes, what were the scribes saying? He's Beelzebub. Rather than going to all, all the study on what Beelzebub was and how that developed, um, basically it was, he was, just, he was considered head of the family of demons. He was the head demon. And they were saying, he's Beelzebub. What did they want to do? They wanted to discredit him. You know, say, listen, his source is, is it's, a, it's a demonic source. In fact, he's Beelzebub. He's, he's the chief. He's the captain of all the demons. He's the head of all the demons. And they accuse him. And Mark omits really the occasion that prompted them to say this. Uh, keep your marker here real quickly. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew provides us what had just happened prior to Jesus saying this, or prior to them saying this. Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 12. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So, this is in the context. He just cast a demon out of this young man. They said, well, the reason he does that is he's the prince of demons. So, Jesus gives us a model, an example. When people say something really stupid to discredit Jesus, we probably should respond. I mean... If someone says something bad about my wife, we're going to get busy. And yet, people talk bad about Jesus and we let it go. Now, those days are over. Well, you have to, for me anyway, you have to decide what you want to do. But Jesus gets busy. He's going to show them, he's going to show them up for who they really are. What does he say? How does, how does he respond to this accusation? He's saying, that's interesting. He said, listen... How can Satan cast out Satan? First of all, he says, how can Satan cast himself out? It's ontologically impossible. And then he says, if a kingdom is divided into cells, that kingdom cannot stand. So why would he do that? And if he did that, he would only be lessening his power. In essence, Jesus is saying, what you said was just really stupid. 
and makes no sense at all. But he does it in a way that God does it and so as opposed to how I would do it. By the way, he's much more effective. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. So he says that what you say doesn't even make sense because if Satan is fighting against himself, then all he is doing is lessening his influence, his power, and his control. But he goes another step. And he gives a parable of what he calls the strong man. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What is he talking about? He's saying, not only am I not doing it by the power of of the prince of demons, I have authority and power over him. He's just a he's a weak homeowner who I I've invaded his home, I've tied him up, and I'm plundering his goods. That's the image. And then these great words. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has never never has forgiveness but has guilty of an eternal sin. My, oh my, how many Christians have labored and, and been twisted in the wind over these verses? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? This is an unnecessary fear for a Christian to have. This is just as unnecessary as Matthew 7.21 that says, they say to me, Lord, Lord. That, that, he's not talking about the average Christian there. I'm not saying that there aren't false professions of faith. I'm not saying that there aren't some people that may be deceived, but Matthew 7.21 is not talking about the average person coming and saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons? It's in the context of false teachers. It's an unnecessary fear that Christians have. That the enemy uses to create fear and insecurity. This one is just like it. Have I competed? Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I, am I, am I just deceived myself? And have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I'm going to hell? Well, let me give you. Let me alleviate your fear. I know there are a lot of teachers that want to create fear. I want to alleviate fear. First of all, this is in the context of unbelief. These scribes and these Pharisees that he's speaking to have never professed belief. Quite the opposite. There is no professed faith. In fact, there's no false profession. There's no losing their salvation. They had none to begin with. This was a hostile crowd that was opposed to Jesus. So the first thing, from the very beginning, he's not talking about some Christian who professed faith and now has fallen away. Now, this is the context of unbelief. They, they had no professed faith to begin with. Number two, there is an absence of any concern or fear. But did, did they go, oh, uh-oh, did we just blow it? Did we just commit the unpardonable? Is there any indication? There is none in Matthew. There certainly is in Mark. There's no indication of concern or fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin. I often tell people, if you're afraid of that, you probably have, no, you most assuredly have not committed it. If, if you committed that, you're not even going to be concerned about it. Number three, it's not normative. This, wasn't, this is not a normative teaching. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that's not authoritative. I'm not saying that, that, that it, it's not binding. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not saying it's not inspired. It is. But, but it's not normative. And why I say it's not normative is that there is no other additional teaching in the epistles that amplify, clarify, or further explain this. 
yes, Jesus said it. It's inspired, obviously, and we take it seriously. But it's not normative, or, or we would see additional teaching. It's unusual and extraordinary. Now, this is an unusual and extraordinary case. Number four, it's deliberate, not accidental. You don't accidentally commit an unpar- the unpardonable sin. It has to be deliberate. Context of unbelief. Absence of concern or fear. It's not normative. It was very unusual, very extraordinary. Not deliberate, not accidental. But I think most of all, to me, it's a misplaced focus. Because we skip right over the verses before it and focus on, have I committed the unpardonable sin? What is the verse that goes before it? All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Think about that for a moment. About the magnitude of His forgiveness. All manner of sin and blasphemies can and will be forgiven. The focus should be on the scope of His forgiveness, not on this extraordinary, unusual case. That was His religious family. What about his real family? Verse 31. His, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my, who are my, bro- my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my, my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother and here we have a reorientation of relationships whoever trusts in Christ becomes part of a new family a forever family it is a tie Jesus says it's even stronger than flesh and blood again turn back to Matthew chapter 10 Some of you have experienced this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute. Do you know we sing that at Christmas? I digress. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He he said, listen, this is going to happen. This may happen. And sadly, there are many whose blood ties are stronger than their... Their blood ties to their family is stronger than their spiritual ties to Christ. Now, that's a whole other sermon about, you know, you should hate your father and mother... I think what he's saying is that our allegiance and our loyalty shifts and changes. It needs to be fine-tuned. It needs to be realigned. It needs to be reoriented. Now turn to chapter 19. Matthew 19. Verse 23. This is your great story of James and John. They send mommy... Uh, to go talk to Jesus about sitting at his right hand in his kingdom. They misunderstood the kingdom. They misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood their mom. They misunderstood everything. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him and with her sons 
And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said, I say to these two sons of mine, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? By the way, okay, this is for free. This was not part of the sermon. What is he saying to James, about James and John? What does he say when he says, They'll drink... Well, let me go on. He said to them, You will drink my cup. What is he saying? What is he prophesying about James and John? That they will be martyred. Drinking his cup was martyrdom. And yet, I hear time and time again that the Apostle John was the only Apostle who died a natural death late in his life. Jesus indicates that he would be martyred. John did not die a natural death. I don't believe tradition, I believe the Bible. He said, you'll you'll drink my cup, alright, but to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were indignant. Why were they indignant? Because they didn't think of it first. James and John beat them to it. But Jesus called them and said, you know know what the rulers of the gentle... uh, they were lorded over in their authority, so it should be among you. Verse 27, Whoever should be first should be, be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter says, Lord, we've left everything. We've left everything to serve you. Was that true? Yes. We read about it. They did leave everything. And what does Jesus respond to him? Jesus says, anything you've left, you've gained ten times that. Father, mother, brothers, sisters. What is he talking about? He's talking about this. His real family embraced him. They didn't try to domesticate him. They didn't try to discredit him. They embraced him. And that's what he means by those who do my will. He will not be domesticated. He will not be discredited. But he must be embraced. Listen, whatever else may change as a result of following Christ, He realigns our mission in life from self to others, to the Gospel. And He he reorients our relationships in life. Our relationships change. He chooses an unlikely group. Look around. He, He has sent us into a difficult and to a demonic world on a daunting mission. We must not try to domesticate him. We certainly cannot allow anyone to discredit him. But we are to call them to embrace him. He realigns our mission. He reorients our relationships. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it in our lives to grow us, to challenge us, to, Father, to rest secure in your love and your calling in our lives. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?